I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24 will be our text this Lord's Day. If you have been with us as we've been walking through Luke's Gospel, you know that where we left off was Jesus sending out the, the 72, or the 70, uh, we have both numbers and, and various translations, but as he sends out this large group of disciples, he empowers them. And much the same way that he had empowered the 12 at the beginning of Luke 9, they are going to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom uh, in the authority of Jesus. They will be able to heal the sick and to uh, rescue the demon oppressed because Christ has given them this authority to go out and to prepare the way for the kingdom. In fact, he says he's sending them into all the places that he is about to go. And with these uh, miracle-working gifts that they have, uh, the kingdom will be validated. The, the gospel will be proclaimed. And at some point there, we don't have the details in the text, uh, Jesus had given them instructions about when to return, and, and now we find them all returning uh, with their praise report from their mission activity. And, and they are praising God and thanking God for all that has taken place. And that's where we pick up as we return to Luke 10. And so I'm going to read for us verses 17 through 24. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read this passage for us. And this is what the word of God says. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we consider the word that is before us from you, as we consider the, the words that we have sang already this morning, Lord, help us to hear that message and this message. Help it, Lord, to penetrate our hearts that we might truly know what it means to experience the greatness of your mercy 
that we might know what it means that while we cannot count the number of our sins, you can and you have, and your mercy indeed is more. Because what you have counted to us in Christ Jesus is his righteousness. We are undeserving of it. We could never earn it. And yet by your grace you have placed it on us as our faith and trust is in him. Lord, help us to rejoice in this gospel news this morning as we consider now what it is that you rejoice over that we find in Luke 10. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you can see from the title of today's sermon, as you can see from the text we just read, that the theme here is one of rejoicing, of having great joy, of delighting. And so my question for you this morning as we consider this text is this. What brings you joy? What do you delight in? (laughs) What do you get excited about? I was thinking on this this week as I was reading about John Newton. Many of you know the name John Newton. He is the author of one of the hymns we sing often, Amazing Grace, a great evangelical pastor. He pastored William Wilberforce, another name that you might be familiar with. And what I was reading about was particularly... Uh, Newton's relationship with his wife, Polly. And all who knew him would talk about how he he absolutely adored his wife, Polly. In fact, he spoke often of her and she of him. And he loved her greatly. In fact, towards the end of his life, uh, letters that he had written to her over the course of their uh, 40-something year courtship and marriage were put into a book and published. And yet some did not receive this book well because of how much he loved his wife. One of his friends actually wrote this. He criticized the book and said, Mr. Newton's release of this book is going to make Christian husbands look bad because he loves his wife so gallantly. All of our wives are going to expect us to love them like he loves his wife, and this is going to be a bad thing for Christian husbands in Britain. What also uh, people remarked at was not just his great love for her, uh, but some questioned why he adored her so much. Uh, Because as many have written, uh, she was neither pretty nor smart. (laughs) And so there wasn't anything on the outside that the world noticed about Polly that, that made them see why it was Newton adored her so much. And he knew this. In fact, after she had passed away, he was... Uh, exchanging correspondence with William Wilberforce, and he said this about his wife in response to friends who had said, what is it that he sees in her? Newton wrote, some women are like a pineapple. Let me pause there, men, and say, if you're looking to encourage your wife today, I do not encourage you to refer to her as a pineapple. But Newton did. And this is what he said and why he said it. He says, What they are cannot be appreciated only in seeing, but in experiencing. I think what Newton was saying to Wilberforce was, I have experienced Polly and and I delight in her. 
She brought him joy, and he rejoiced in this relationship that God had so graciously given to him. Friends, what do you rejoice in today? Or what do you delight in today? I've been privileged to pastor this church for uh, 13 years now, and so I've had the opportunity to, to see some of you as uh, parents of teenagers when I got here, see those teenagers grow and mature and get married and now have children, and I've seen some of you become grandparents. And when I was thinking about this sermon today and thinking about someone delighting in something, I thought about many of you who've become grandparents and how you delight in your grandchildren. That the, the joy you have when you show those pictures, that the, the delight you have when you hold that child. And even to see some of you, that those grandchildren grow and mature and come to the point where they are putting their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus. And to see you, to see us as a congregation, delight in the salvation of these children. Friends, what brings you that kind of delight and that kind of joy? And more importantly, what brings the Father and the Son and the Spirit delight and joy? What, what does the Son rejoice in? And we see that in today's passage. As we see now, the 72 have returned from their short-term missionary journey. And now they come, and Luke tells us they returned with joy, that they are rejoicing. And not only are they rejoicing and delighting in what they've seen, then we see the Son rejoicing and delighting. And we learn from this delight and from this joy what it is you and I today should be rejoicing in. Well, what we should have joy in, and we, we need these reminders and this cynical, critical age we live in. When, when it seems that more and more people don't have joy in anything. And as soon as someone does express joy, there's someone there to cut down that joy. Well, I really love this. Well, you really know this about that, don't you? What we need to be reminded as followers of Jesus, what, what it means to have true gospel-saturated joy, what it means to delight in the Lord, and, and what it is that we should be delighting in. And I think there's at least three things in this passage that, that Luke has put before us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that things that, that we need to be rejoicing in, that we need to be praising God for today. That, that's what it means to rejoice. It means to have joy and to express that joy. And in the context of our faith, to express that joy to the Father through the Son empowered by the Spirit. And so first, I believe we're reminded here, number one there in your outline, we are to rejoice, we are to praise God for His saving grace. We're to praise God for His saving grace. We, we are to rejoice in conversion, to rejoice in salvation. Notice again, verse 17, now the 72 have returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And now we can imagine what this would have been because some of the most amazing accounts we've read in the gospel so far have been when, when Jesus has exercised this authority over the demonic realm and we have seen the demon oppressed freed from that oppression. And we've seen that the remarkable change and we've seen how not only do those people who are freed from this demonic oppression, not only do they rejoice, but their family members rejoice, and their friends rejoice, and in some cases, the entire town rejoices. 
And so you can imagine the joy then as these 72 who've gone out two by two into all these remote villages and all these towns that Jesus is going to be ministering in. And they've seen this happen now. And God has given this authority to them. And they return and they rejoice. And then Luke tells us how Jesus responds to this joy-filled report. Verse 18, then Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now that is a saturated passage. <laughs> that there's a lot there. In fact, there's some there that's not there that people try to make be there, but... But there's a lot here. When, when, when you read this passage, that probably jumps out at you. There's probably questions that come to mind. Well, what does that mean? And when did that happen? And, and there are different perspectives. Particularly when Jesus here talks about you know, Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I'll share with you my perspective this morning. I think the most natural reading of the text is the context in which it's in. And so the disciples have returned and they are telling Jesus what they saw. They saw the demons respond to the authority of Jesus' name. They saw the demonically oppressed free. And so they're probably sharing accounts about, you know, you know, we went into this town, and not so different than what we've seen in the Gospels, that this father brought to us his child, and this child was convulsing. This child was oppressed. This child would throw himself into fires. This child was marked with scars and bruises. This child would not look us in the eyes. He was so overwhelmed by this demonic oppression. And in the name of Jesus, we saw that oppression go. And then we preached to the dozens who were gathered about the gospel of the kingdom. And we saw people put their faith in Christ as the Lord's Messiah. Account after account. They're telling Jesus what they saw. And then I believe what Jesus does is he says, well, here's what I saw. Because Jesus sees what we don't see. Well, we see this external activity. The disciples, they see what's taking place in these towns, these villages they're ministering to. I believe what Jesus is saying here, let me tell you what I saw. I saw the heavens. We'll get to Luke 15 eventually. And what we are reminded of in Luke 15 is that when one sinner repents. One sinner repents. The heavens rejoice. That the angelic choir sings. That the angels praise God. What does heaven rejoice about? What does heaven delight in? Conversion. The, the, the proclamation of the kingdom. And now the kingdom has come through the Lord's Messiah. Now the foundation of the kingdom is being poured as Jesus is prepared to go to the cross and die for sin and strike that blow to the enemy. That the heel is going to come down and crush the head of the serpent just as God said the heel would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Satan is being destroyed. Satan is falling like lightning. And Jesus, as the gospel of the kingdom is going out and going forth, as darkness is being exposed and overwhelmed by light, Jesus says, let me tell you what I saw in the heavens. 
I saw a defeated enemy. I saw an enemy fall. That is what I saw. And so then these other things, I, I believe, go along with that. Jesus says to his disciples, yeah, you did that because I gave you the authority to do that. <laughs> I don't think that Jesus is being cynical here. I don't think in any way he's admonishing them for rejoicing. I think he's saying to them, yeah, yeah you saw these things. You should rejoice in these things. I've given you the authority to do this. In fact, along with that, he says in this passage, he's given them the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and have power over the enemy and how nothing will harm them. Another passage, or part of the passage, I think has been grossly misunderstood and misinterpreted. Is You'll have some who will take this and say, well, if you really believe in God and trust in Jesus, then, then you'll handle snakes and you'll handle scorpions, although I've not seen as many scorpion handling churches. And there's one other place that I found in my study where serpents and scorpions are mentioned together. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8.15. In Deuteronomy chapter 8.15, Moses is recounting to God's people how God is their deliverer and how during the exodus, when he was bringing them through the terrifying wilderness, the wilderness filled with, quote, serpents and scorpions, how God was their deliverer, God was their rescuer. He brought them through safely through this exodus. They should trust in him. And now I believe what you have here is the greater Moses, that the one who leads us through the great exodus into the promised land. In fact, this is in the context of Jesus telling them, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your place is in the promised land. I bring you through the wilderness to the other side and nothing's going to hurt you. Just like nothing hurt your forefathers before you. In fact, I have given you power through the gospel, power through the Holy Spirit over these things that men once feared. Trust in me, you need not fear. And so in the context then of all of this, of them rejoice, rejoicing over light overcoming the darkness, rejoicing over Satan being defeated, rejoicing over the authority of Jesus being proclaimed over the demonically oppressed, Jesus then says to them in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I think that the, the, the literary technique we see here is, is not Jesus saying, well, you shouldn't rejoice in that. that. That's a bad thing that you're rejoicing in. I think what Jesus is doing here is kind of an argument of the greater and the lesser. Yes, those are certainly things that you might rejoice in, but let me tell you about a greater joy. Take, take that rejoicing you have and now let's multiply it towards something far greater. The, the greater thing, Jesus says, to rejoice in is what? That, that you know the Father through the Son, that, that your names are now written in heaven. That, that you are heaven bound, that you are on your way to the promised land, that your passage has been secured. If you want to truly rejoice, if you want to know what it is 
that the Father and the Son and the Spirit delight in more than anything else, it is this, the conversion of the lost. That the lost being found. The salvation of our souls. <laughs> Praise God, he says here, for this saving grace. Friends, when, when's the last time you praised God for His saving grace in your life? That the last time you delighted at the knowledge that God saved you? J.C. Ryle, the 19th century evangelical Anglican pastor, wrote that many times we, we don't truly rejoice in our salvation because we don't truly recognize what we've been saved from. He said it this way, nothing so blinds the eyes of our souls to the beauty of the gospel as the vain delusive idea that we are not so ignorant and wicked as some. And that we have got a character which will bear inspection. Happy is the man who has learned to feel that he is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. To see that we are bad, he wrote, is the first step towards being really good. To feel that we are ignorant is the first beginning of all saving knowledge. His point is simply this. You can't rejoice and the good news, until you fully understand the bad news. And some of us, we, we just want to rush right on to the good news. Because we don't really want to consider the bad news. Because the bad news is this. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all desperately depraved and wicked beyond what we can even comprehend. And the wages of that sin, that depravity, that wickedness is death. We are deserving of the wrath of God. And yet so often we, we look out at a lost and dying world. We look out at the evening news. We look out at the headline of wickedness and darkness and depravity. And we are quick to look at that in judgment and say they are deserving of the wrath of God. But friends, do you understand? You are deserving of the wrath of God. Every single one of you, we are deserving of the wrath of God. Were we to get what we deserve, we would have no hope whatsoever. Were we to attempt to count our sins, we'd run out of zeros on the calculator. Innumerable. And even while we were counting, more would be added to it. Do you realize this? Because if you truly realize it, if you truly realize your depravity and the darkness of your soul, then you can begin to rejoice in the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Then you can read Romans 5.8 that says God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us and say, praise the Lord. I don't deserve that. Thank you, God, for that kind of love. Because, friends, you and I don't have that kind of love. 
Most of us have not experienced the most awful, wicked thing that could possibly be done to us, but were we to experience overwhelming darkness and evilness and and wickedness attacking us and our family and our loved ones, for so many of us, our hearts then would be calloused and hard. We would not want to do anything for those who inflicted that on us. I mean, some of us have experienced far lesser things and we bear unforgiving hearts towards those who have offended us. God demonstrates His love toward us and while we were still offenders, while we were still in our depravity, still rebellious, Christ died for us. And if we will confess, Romans 10 says, Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. Saved from what? What we deserve, hell. And when we truly begin to just get a glimpse of what we're deserving of, then our natural overflow of our heart is just to praise God and rejoice in God because He has saved us. And if this morning and other Lord's days when we sing of the amazing grace of God, if that grace isn't so amazing to you, if you're looking and thinking, my goodness, how much longer are we going to be here? If your heart is dull to those things, that may be an indication that you don't know what it is to be saved by God. That that you don't rejoice because you have nothing to rejoice in. You're moral. You, You clean yourself up well. You know the right things to say, but your heart has not been redeemed. Therefore, your heart does not rejoice in these gospel truths. But for those who have been redeemed, we're told here that that we're to praise God for this. I mean, Jesus says to the disciples, to the 72, listen, if if you're going to rejoice for something principally, you, you need to rejoice in the saving grace of the Father. Not just that point too, we need to rejoice in the sovereign grace of the Father. Praise God for His sovereign grace, which goes hand in hand with His saving grace. And so now we move from the rejoicing of the 72 as they return, the the encouragement from the Son of what they are to truly rejoice in, to now we get to see what it is Jesus rejoices in. Just, Just a side note here. There's one place in all of the Gospels where we're told what Jesus rejoices in. And it's right here in Luke 10. Think about that. We're told multiple times what Jesus has compassion over. We're told multiple times about so many things that Jesus does in response to others. We're told one time in all Gospel accounts about Jesus rejoicing in something. And this is it. In that same hour, He, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son is chooses to reveal Now, I just want to point out several things about this 
part of our passage. The, the, the first one I've already mentioned here, Jesus is rejoicing. And in particular, it's not that Jesus didn't rejoice, but as we have recorded for us, this is the one time we haven't recorded what it was he rejoiced over. The salvation of souls. Those who have been converted. That the sovereign will at God, the will of God, that those who are chosen, those who believe, those who are redeemed, that this is what Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, praises the Father for. And so, you think about when's the last time you delighted in what it means to be saved, along with that here. When's the last time you delighted in someone else being saved? When's the last time that, that you had joy in your heart over a lost person being found? When's the last time you just absolutely delighted in? So someone you had prayed for, someone you'd shared the gospel with, that person going from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That this is what the Son is rejoicing in. And we see that here. So first we see Jesus rejoices. Next notice we see that the, the, the beauty of the triune nature of our God here. What we see, don't overlook this. We see the Son, God the Son, in the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, praising the Father. That this, this beautiful, mysterious relationship of the Trinity we see right here in Luke chapter 10. We see this perfect union, this perfect fellowship, this delightful rejoicing of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in what? In the salvation of souls. This is what we should get excited about. And so often we get so excited about lesser things. And it's not that we shouldn't be excited about lesser things. But friends, there are things more excitable, there are things more joy-worthy than building projects and ministry activities and, and, and this and this and this and this and all those things that can, can fill our schedules and the, the body of Christ. All these things we get excited about that are lesser things, not unimportant things, but need not replace first things. Here we're reminded of that as we see the sovereign will of God at work in the salvation of souls and the Father and the Son and the Spirit in union rejoicing over those things. So Jesus rejoices. We see here a picture of our triune God. Third, notice what Jesus says here about those that God is sovereignly saving as they place their faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I, I don't think that Jesus says this, prays this in the presence of the disciples to, 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 to bring them down. You know? I, I don't think that there's... I actually uh, listened to a sermon on this passage by a, a pastor who... Uh, I, I, it's very solid pastor, but but in preaching about this passage, he just preached it entirely from the perspective of, of pride, and the disciples were prideful here. And so Jesus, you know, he's bringing them down a notch. And I don't think that's what's happening here. 
I don't think Jesus is saying to the disciples, now remember, you're just little children. I think what Jesus is doing here, he's unpacking for us just the, that the sovereign will of God and those he saves. And you think about the expectation at this point. You know, generation after generation after generation of God's people, they were longing for and looking towards the Lord's Messiah to come. And when they would gather their family and they would go on the journey and they would buy the sacrificial lamb and they would enter into the temple grounds and they would see that the priest and all their, their, their ornamental garments and they would see the religious leaders and they would see the scribes and the Pharisees that they would look to them as these are the ones that when the Messiah comes that this will be his entourage. That this will be the ones who help him usher in the kingdom. It'll be the wise and the understanding and those who they've dedicated their lives to these things. They, they know this better than we do. Who is it that's in the 72 and the 12 and the 3? It's not those people. And it's not those who were considered the wise and the understanding. Jesus, when He comes, the, the foundation of His kingdom is not being poured through the, the priest. It's being poured through the peasants. He's revealed the Father's will to fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, outcasts. And here, Jesus is praising the Father for this. He's saying to His Father, Father, thank You for Your sovereign and gracious will that, that You have revealed the mysteries of the kingdom to those that nobody expected You to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom to. That, that's, that's You, God. That, that's what You do. And friends, that's what He's still doing today. So often in the in the Christian community, we, we have this idea of, well, if God would just, you know, if He would just save this celebrity with this platform, then so many would hear the Gospel. Or, or we look to the celebrity, or we look to the politician who, who has the photo op with the Bible, or who says something about the name of Jesus, and we think, okay, this, this is the way God's going to work. That this is the way the kingdom's going to be fully realized. It's going to be through these people of power and of influence, and that's who God's going to use. I'll remind you of what we see in the gospel. And it's not that God can't use those people, but, but look at how God grows his kingdom. And look at how God's growing his kingdom today. Through, through nameless pastors and missionaries and believers. That names that you don't know and I don't know. No platform. No social media presence. No million followers. Just faithful followers of Jesus sharing the gospel of the kingdom and God through the gospel proclamation overcoming the darkness with the light. We don't need to have these grandeur ideas of what this looks like. It simply looks like this. You sharing the gospel of the kingdom with someone else. And when that happens, while what you see 
is a fearful conversation, maybe an awkward conversation, a nervous conversation. What Jesus sees is the enemy being defeated and being cast out. That the demonic realm being crushed and destroyed. That the angels rejoicing because with that conversation, the Holy Spirit is at work each and every day. And what we do here in this church and what so many other churches do around the world today. And this brings the Father joy. This brings the Son joy. This brings the Spirit joy. So we see and notice here what Jesus says about those who God is sovereignly saying. Also notice here specifically what He says about God's sovereignty and salvation. All these things have been handed over to Me by My Father and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We see the sovereign plan and the sovereign hand of God at work. Now, not in people just kind of fumbling around and stumbling across the gospel on their own time and their own effort. We see God's hand reaching down, choosing and snatching us out of darkness. And not anything to do with ourselves. Not of our own doing. The glorious truth that we're reminded of over and over and over again in God's Word. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Can you get your mind around that for a second? You weren't a, a glimpse in your mother, mother or father died because your mother and your father didn't exist yet. Before the foundation of the world, God had a sovereign plan that involved Him choosing to reveal the truth of the Gospel to us. What a glorious truth that is. Not only that, Ephesians chapter 2, salvation is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. So that no one would boast. And no one can boast. Why? Because we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We would never deserve it. Never earn it. It is the gift God has bestowed on us. And friends, if there is anything worth praising God for, it is the sovereign will of God in salvation. That God, rich in mercy and grace, reached down and saved you and saved me. We, we have nothing else we need before us to spend the rest of our lives praising God and thanking God for that truth. We should delight in this. We should rejoice in this. The saving grace of God. The sovereign grace of God. And then last point three. We should praise God for giving us then ears to hear and eyes to see. Jesus concludes then this passage, verse 23, by saying this. He, he turns to the disciples privately. So the indication here is that as the 72 have come back and given this report, there's probably other gathered. He's either turning to the 72 or he's turning to the 12. But in some context, he's turning to disciples here and says to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear, and did not hear. He looks over at Peter and says, Peter, you've seen things Moses never saw. Matthew, you, 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 have, you have heard things proclaimed that, that Isaiah could not even imagine. 
Abraham didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon of the Frame or any of these other sermons that they heard. Well, what a blessed thing to rejoice in, he says to the disciples, that your eyes have seen and your ears have heard these glorious things that prophets, kings, like King David, they longed to see, they did not see, and now you see. And friends, do you realize that we today, 2,000 years later, we, we have seen and heard things that the disciples did not see and hear? We have the, the, the full complete Word of God before us, that, that we can see and rejoice in this great and glorious truth from beginning to end and see the thread of the Gospel that goes through all of it. That these towns and these villages that they went into that rejected them, that God would later send others into. And through the grace of God, many in those towns and villages would repent and trust in God and that Gospel would go forward and go forward and go forward today. The disciples never saw the saints gather at Bloomfield Baptist Church and rejoice in the gospel. We have 2,000 years of gospel kingdom advance and church history that we can rejoice in today and we can praise God for today. We have baptisms we celebrate. We have the kingdom of darkness being crushed by the kingdom of light. We rejoice in these things. And we have so much more before us than they had then. And we should rejoice in this. That the sovereign will of God is unfolding before us. And we see it. And we hear it. Unless we don't. Because as these things are unfolding and happening, there, there are people who do not recognize it. That they don't have eyes to see and they don't have ears to hear. That they are blinded to the light of the gospel. That they are deaf to hear the sounds of the saints rejoicing at our church and many others. But because they are still in slavery to their sin, they're still filled with wickedness and darkness. And perhaps that is the case for some of you today. And the only hope that you have and that a lost and dying world has is to respond to the saving grace and the sovereign grace of God who has put before you this morning the gospel of the kingdom. To, to see and behold that gospel is more precious than anything you will ever see and ever experience in this world. And to put your trust and your hope in Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, who died in your place and in mine, and who offers this gracious invitation that if we will confess Him as our Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved, we will be transferred from that kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of light. And all of a sudden, we can hear. All of a sudden, we can see. Our daughter, Caroline, was born with a severe hearing loss. I can remember when she was just a few months old, sitting in a doctor's office, and feigning asking so many questions, and, and that doctor getting rather frustrated with our questions, and then just cutting us off and saying, your child will never say mama or dad. They'll never hear you speak and they'll never see you. 
I remember the first time Caroline said, Mom, I'm dying. And if you know her, she hasn't stopped speaking since. In that process, we watched a lot of videos of cochlear implants and other medical tools used to help people who can't hear, hear. You've seen things like this, many of you have. That moment a child, that moment an adult, for the first time in their life, they hear. I've seen even people who've had amazing cornea transplants who were, who were blind and then they can see. And if you've seen these things, it's an amazing thing. There's joy and there's delight and there's tears and there's celebration. The blind can see and the deaf can hear. You multiply that a billion times. And that's the joy in heaven when one sinner trusts in Christ. That, that's the delight we have in the gospel kingdom of heaven. What else do we need? To encourage us, to motivate us, to burden us, to share the gospel with those who desperately need to hear it, and to respond to that gospel today for those who have it. And so that is the invitation for us. If you would stand together as I pray for us today.